The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Revival. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Isaiah 64, 1-4, and Romans 1, 16-17. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. From the book of Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome again. Hopefully you guys have had a good week or you're having a good morning. We are glad that you're here. We've prayed for you to be here. We've prepared for you to be here. We're expecting God to speak to you while you're here. That might be a far-fetched idea for some of you, um, but we believe that God is here in his word and he will speak to you if you open up your mind and you allow him to this morning. So I'm going to pray. We're going to get right to it. I've got a lot of work to do. Uh, Father, we humble ourselves before you and we need you to speak to us. Our world is broken uh, many of us, we, we feel that in our own family. Our family is broken. Um, maybe we're lacking in faith ourselves, and so we kind of feel spiritually lost and frustrated at the world and don't really know how to move forward and what it's all for. And we're lacking in hope and we're lacking in joy. And, and God, you are the so- source of all good things. And so we come to you this morning. We ask that you to speak. We ask that you would, as Isaiah said, rend the heavens and come down. That you feel distant from us, but we ask you to be near to us. Father, I am aware of my own inability to make that happen. I am just a man and a sinful man at that. A man with his own flaws, his own failures, his own struggles, his own warped personality. And so I I cannot convince people of that or make that happen. And so I'm fully relying on the power of, of your word and the power of your gospel and the Holy Spirit this morning. So would you help me think rightly, help me speak clearly, and would you give us faith to hear this morning for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're talking about revival. This series is called Revival. Um, If you're just joining us, no, we are not some goofballs who are uh, wanting just to get really spiritually hyped up and do weird things, uh, which kind of is characterized by revival. What a revival actually is, is a movement of God where individuals are awakened to God, churches are revitalized, and the culture is impacted for the glory of God. Um, We've seen this throughout history. In our own country, in the Great Awakening, in the Second Great Awakening, um, that churches, we, individuals came to faith, churches were revitalized, and the culture was impacted. Benjamin Franklin even wrote about it and said that he couldn't go anywhere in town without hearing psalms sung in all the homes, that this was um, a kind of a universal experience when revival hits. 
And I gave you that prayer journal. And guys, listen, I know we don't actually put too much stuff in your hands. And I know you're busy. And I know there's a million different resources. But I, I wanted to put this simple resource in your hands to encourage us all together collectively as a church, as a body, to have one purpose over the next eight weeks, which now is like five or six weeks. And that is to pray that God would revive us, our families, our cities, our nation, and our world. And so I hope that you're using that. I would encourage you, please uh, keep using it. Pick one up if you haven't picked one up, and let's keep praying together that God would do something special here in our cities. Now, last week, we learned that there are two necessary ingredients for revival. And if you missed it, you should go back and listen to it. Uh, Light and heat. And we closed last week by learning that the gospel, the gospel, that word gospel literally means good news. Um, The gospel is the fuel of all true revival. But then that should beg the question for us, then if the gospel is the fuel for revival, then why aren't more churches actually experiencing revival? Well, the Barna research said that we are the 27th least church city in the United States, the Quad Cities region here. That's worse than Chicago, worse than St. Louis, worse than Des Moines, worse than Iowa City. And other research shows that actually nine out of 10 churches have stagnated or are declining in attendance. That means, think about that. Nine out of 10 churches in our city didn't add one member last year, didn't add one new convert, and actually are going backwards. If the gospel is the fuel for revival, then why aren't more churches growing? It seems like the gospel is a pretty easy thing to get right. Jesus died for my sins and rose again. How hard is that? Well, surprisingly, It is actually very easy to get that wrong, actually. And when you do, here's what happens. Spiritual declension awaits. Going backwards, spiritual recession. And today we're going to look at three, what I'm calling counterfeit gospels that always cause spiritual recessions. These false gospels kill churches, repel unbelievers, and turn the hearts of Christians colder than Elsa's ice castle. And it's my bet this morning that you might be believing at least one of them. (gasps) Me? Yes, you. And I know that you are being tempted to believe at least one of them. So that means you are tempted to turn away from revival. You're tempted to grow cold. And we're going to expose these counterfeit gospels the same way you would expose a counterfeit $100 bill by comparing it to the real thing. So we're going to get right into it this morning. I've got a lot of work to do. I'm praying that I can do this. Uh, Open up your Bibles to the book of Romans. Uh, After Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, then we've got the letters of Paul. We've got Romans right there. Open it up to Romans chapter 1. We're only going to look at two verses today, technically, right? Not a whole chapter like I do a lot of time. We're going to look at two verses. I cannot pull everything out of these two verses. I'm going to tell you that this morning. I'm woefully inadequate to do that. These two verses are amazing, all right? Here we go. We're getting into it. Chapter 1, 
verse 16, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, a man who um, hated the gospel, hated Christianity, was a huge proponent for its uh, demise, and then this one guy got converted, all right, and changed his mind. Now, let's look at this. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, first I want to say the word gospel, it isn't anything new, all right? This word gospel is, it means a message of good news. When you had a baby, you declared the gospel. You came out, we had a baby and everybody said, "Woo! this is good news, right? It's good news of something that, something that has happened, all right? That's what the word gospel means. But Paul here says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, now, isn't that kind of strange to say, I'm not ashamed of the good news? No, now, many of us don't come out after we just gave birth or your wife just gave birth and go, I'm not ashamed she had a baby, <laughs> right? There's good news. Why would you be ashamed of the good news? Well, the first thing we see here is that there is something about the gospels. There's something about the good news of Jesus that tempts a person to be ashamed of it. Paul was a public intellectual. He was educated in the best schools of his day. And he had a lot of reasons to be ashamed of the gospel. The content, the message of the gospel is very foolish to a wise, educated person. Paul said this himself in the book of 1 Corinthians. Here's the content of the gospel. A publicly condemned criminal was crucified by the government and then he got up and came back to life. That's the content. Imagine con con trying to convince one of your college professors of this fact. Yeah, my brother, he got condemned by the state, but three days later he came back to us, right? And he lived again. This is a hard message to convey, right? This is a hard message to really get an intellectual to embrace. And yet we see the Apostle Paul as this public intellectual who is anti-gospel, anti-Christianity, all of a sudden, something happens in his life and he becomes the key proponent of believing that this publicly condemned, crucified man actually got up and was raised to new life, okay? Now, this is what we need to see. That's the gospel content. But he says, I'm not ashamed of it because this is why. Or for, because it is the power of God for salvation, See, the gospel isn't just a message to be told, uh, this crucified dude got up. It's also a power to experience. We see this in our text. Paul refuses to accept shaming in respect of the gospel because it is the very power of God that brings salvation to anyone who believes. See, the gospel is the Power. You know what that word power is in the Greek? It's dynamis. It's where we get our words dynamite or dynamic. See, the gospel is not primarily good advice, just a message to be believed. It's on how to improve or a message like good, good advice is, hey, here's 10 steps to improve your life. Good news is we just had a baby. Something has happened, right? The gospel is good news, not good advice. The gospel is a power that radically transforms your life. So here we begin to see how we are confronted with the reality of the gospel in comparison 
to the counterfeit gospel, here's one, of American religion. American religion is a folk religion. American religion is Christianity that has been baptized in American values. It is Christianity that has been colonialized. Okay, It has become a folk religion, something of its own. American religion baptizes the true gospel in the ideals of the American dream. American religion lowers the standard down, God's holy standard down to something I can manage on my own, making good news into good advice. Here's some ways to improve your life. Here's some things to become a good person. Here's some things to be more generous and more kind, to be more welcoming and to have your best life now. Here's some tips from the Bible on how to become financially secure. Here's some tips from the Bible to how to be a better parent. Today, all across our country, preachers will get up in their pulpits and give people good advice on how to improve their lives how to be better people and move up the corporate ladder and live stress-free lives, how to fast like Daniel. The American religion of good advice is nothing more than a false gospel of moralism. Listen to commentator Leon Morris on this verse here when he says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. He says the gospel is not advice to people suggesting that they lift themselves up. Every other religion is advice. Here's five steps to reach nirvana. Here's three steps to be a good Jewish person. Here's you know, eight steps to reach enlightenment. Every other religion on earth is good advice on how to lift yourself up into a new realm of being, into a better person or more enlightened being. The gospel is not advice to people, suggesting that they lift themselves up. It is power. It lifts them up. Paul does not say that the gospel brings power, but that it is power and God's power at that. When the gospel is preached, this is not simply so many words being uttered. The power of God is at work. Listen, when the gospel enters anyone's life, it is though the very fire of God had come upon him. There is warmth and light in his life. It's Leon Morris. That's, you see that there's light and heat again, pointing back to last week. Now, so American religion turns the gospel into good advice. And if they're preaching good advice, there's not going to be any revival. And if you're believing in your soul that the gospel is primary good advice on how to become a better person, you're not going to experience any revival yourself. If your missional community is surrounded by a lot of good advice, you're not going to have revival and true life change happening in your missional community. The gospel is not good advice. And this leads us right into the second false gospel that we are tempted to believe. The false gospel of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. This gospel says that you can come to Christ, receive forgiveness of your sins by praying a prayer or coming down to the altar, and then you live your lives however you want going forward. You got that forgiveness thing taken care of, check. This makes converts who have the name of Christ on their lips, but whose life looks nothing like the life of Jesus. 
the wider culture, those outside these walls, rightly call this hypocrisy and reject it. These guys are Christians, and yet they're supporting this? These guys are Christians, and yet they're living like this? Their life doesn't look anything like the Jesus they proclaim. Sadly, many people reject Christianity and they reject the true gospel. And and in reality, they're not rejecting the true gospel. They're rejecting the false gospel of cheap grace. When Paul says here in our text, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. He's not just talking about having your sins forgiven. We've been, our idea of salvation is so small and it's not biblical. Salvation in this context doesn't just mean having your sins forgiven. It also means deliverance. Here's, what's deliverance? I know it's a movie and that kind of freaks me out. No, it's nothing about that. Deliverance is this. It's the idea that mankind hasn't just sinned and needs forgiven. Mankind is also held captive. We are enslaved and sin is our slave master. We don't just arbitrarily do bad things. We are enticed to do these bad things by sin. Sin is something out there. It's evil in the world, but it also runs through each and every one of us. And there's something in us that tempts us and pulls us that we're motivated to sin. We're forced to sin almost. That sin is this inner compulsion that drives us to lie. Have you ever walked away from a conversation and been like, why did I just lie? I didn't need to lie. There's something going on in that conversation that I feel like I had to lie. This leads us to lie. This leads us to cheat. This leads us to steal. This leads us to be proud and arrogant and look down on others. See, sin is something that we are enslaved by, and that is why it feels almost impossible to resist at times. If you're caught in a sin or a sinful pattern that you can't quite get out of, it feels almost impossible to break free of that. It feels like an addiction. Now, if that is the truth, and that's what Scripture teaches us, listen, we need far more than forgiveness of sins to set things right and to make us right and to make the world right, forgiveness for what we've done in the past is great and it's a part of our salvation, but it is not the only part and probably not even the most important part. We also need to be delivered from the power of sin that is hell-bent on ruining our lives, ruining our families, ruining our cities and ruining our world. Now think about this. Why are people in our world doing horrible things, right? And you got people on both. We just saw another horrific event happen in American culture and American life. And you got everybody so polarized and they want to talk about the weapons. And, and you know what? We, we should talk about that. And there, are, there, there seems to be very clear things that we could limit some of those weapons. But the problem is in the heart of human beings, Getting the gun out of this guy's hands would have minimized the damage. If he walked in with a handgun, he wouldn't have been able to kill as many people, right? But if he comes in with a knife, he still can do it. He can still bring damage. There's something going on. Why, are, why is this happening? And listen, 
The medical community can't answer it. We can push it off on mental health. That's just pushing it out there like somebody who says, well, maybe he's demon-possessed. A hundred years ago, they would have said, maybe he's demon-possessed. Now we push it out there and say, well, it's a mental health issue. We don't know what to do about it. The issue is there is sin and evil in our world and sin and evil in us, and we need a power to restrain that evil in us and in other people. And the gospel is the power that restrains evil. You know this. There's not like people in the world, some people cheat on their husband and wife and some people don't. They're sinners and every single person on earth is tempted to do one of those things. They're tempted to cheat. What gives one the power to resist that pull? Your own willpower is, a, is, is very difficult. You're going, to be, you're, going to be, you're going to be pushing up against your willpower your whole life. The gospel gives us something supernatural to enable us to resist this, to resist sin. So Paul says here that the gospel is the power that delivers us from the power of sin. This power justifies us. What's that word? Justifies. It means, think of a courtroom that we are made right with God in an instant, but it also sanctifies us. Being justified means I'm immediately made right in God's eyes, but then sanctified means that I am being made right in God's eyes. I'm being made more and more and more like Jesus. So the power that justifies us and forgives us from all our past sins, it also sanctifies us by empowering us to resist sin and live lives that give glory to God. And the gospel will eventually glorify everyone who believes it. That means the Bible teaches that Christians are made right with God and then we're being made right with God and we're becoming more like Jesus. And then when we die or when Christ comes back, eventually we will be made perfect in the image of Jesus and therefore we can exist in heaven in a perfect world. Because the only way heaven could be perfect is, is all the sin and brokenness in us was removed and we'll be glorified and made new like Christ. Now, I want you to see the radical nature of this. Paul is saying here that the gospel is not just a message to be told. It's also a power to experience. And this power radically changes everyone. It has an evangelistic power that brings people into God's kingdom and church, but it also has a discipleship power, a power to make people who are in the church more and more like Jesus, more humble. There's nothing worse than a religiously proud, arrogant, moralistic person. More kind, more bold, more generous, more hospitable, willing to open up their house and their life to outsiders, more forgiving. The gospel has the power to make, make us into truth speakers who aren't brash. People who are radically inclusive without sacrificing truth. That the gospel empowers us to resist sin and live new lives. That the gospel is the power of God that declares us righteous while simultaneously is actively at work making us righteous. The gospel isn't good advice and the gospel isn't cheap grace. 
The gospel is the announcement that Jesus has saved us from the consequences of our sin. And it's also the power that is delivering us from the power of sin in our daily life. If a church preaches cheap grace, they'll have a lot of people that say they love Jesus and these people won't have any fruit in their life. They live just like everybody else. They have no conviction over sin. They're not becoming more like Jesus. They're not becoming more humble, more kind, more generous. And the culture looks at that and goes, hypocrites. So what is it that unleashes, if this gospel is this power, this dynamite, what is it that unleashes this power in a person's life or in a church or in a missional community? Let's look at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, look, to everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. Faith is the match that lights the gospel fuse, that leads to this life-changing explosion. That the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You have to put your faith and your trust and your hope in the gospel. Faith does it. Faith turns on the light switch. Faith lights the fuse. But then we could ask ourselves, but what is faith? Well, that's a question that has created a lot of controversies actually over the centuries in a re reaction to kind of over and against this concept of cheap grace, just come to Jesus, walk an altar, pray a prayer, and then your sins are forgiven. Now go do whatever you want to do. Many have overreacted and said things like, a person cannot know that they're saved. That a person's salvation is based on the fruit in their life. They must prove that they are saved by living a good life and going to church and performing many good works. This leads to the counterfeit gospel called legalism. And basically what it is, is basing my justification with God upon my sanctification. This is the counterfeit gospel that says, God is only happy with you when you are living up to his standards. When you do well, God is happy with you, but when you mess up, God is angry at you. And this produces a tremendous amount of guilt in a person's life. And it makes them a dutiful slave to God instead of a joyful worshiper of God. And it's interesting that I just, the Catholic Church has been known for legalism, but I have met as much legalism in evangelical churches than any Catholic church. And Martin Luther, who sparked the Reformation, he sparked a great revival in his day. He became a Catholic priest under the false gospel of legalism. One day he got scared out of his mind in a thunderstorm and a lightning storm. And he literally said to God, if you get me out of this, I'll become a priest. God got him out of it and he became a priest. And his father hated the idea, wanted to convince him different. He couldn't convince him. And he came into the church and he was being taught during this time that your works 
Basically, you becoming a better person proved your salvation and you would kind of gain your salvation. And then even in the afterlife, there's places where you'd have to purgatory and there's, there's all kind of different levels and there's all kind of different things going on. He came into the church under this uh, mindset, under this false gospel of legalism. And so when he would read this chapter that we're reading right now, Martin Luther, he would hear the term, the righteousness of God. Let's look in this next verse, verse 17. For in it, so that's the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. When Martin Luther read this, in the gospel, the righteousness of God was revealed, he would shake he read this to believe. He was reading the Latin and he read at first and he was reading this and he thought this meant the holiness of God is revealed in the gospel, right? He knew that there was no way he was ever going to be able to earn his way to heaven or become more holy or become more righteous through his good works. He would confess to his priests so much that they told him, go away and don't come back until you have something really good to confess, he would confess over being jealous of somebody else's portion at meal. He'd come back and say, I saw his meal. He got a bigger portion and I was jealous of it. Forgive me. Now, listen, you might think he's crazy, but all he did was he really believed the standard of God's holiness and his own re the, the, the light of his own sinfulness. He realized I'm nothing like God. I can never make my way to God. And he, he beat himself up a lot because of it. But then one day, as a Catholic priest, right? He was a monk first, then a Catholic priest. As a Catholic priest. So let me just say this. When he, his first celebration as a priest, he had to present the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And he was so overwhelmed by his own insignificance that he failed and he was shaking and he spilt and he messed up. And it was a humiliating experience for him. This is how high he regarded the holiness of God and how rightfully he saw his own self. But then one day, Martin Luther is reading the verses that we're reading today. And this time he's reading them in the Greek, okay? And he rediscovers the true gospel by studying the Greek word, uh, dikasuni, I can't remember how to say it now. The word, it's the word righteousness right here, the righteousness of God. And Luther realized by studying the Greek word here, that this wasn't just speaking of God's righteousness, this holy standard that God has, nor was it speaking of a person's righteousness that they have earned by doing good works. I'm a righteous person. Look at my track record. It wasn't talking about that. Rather, it was a righteousness that God could credit to someone. A righteousness that God, the righteous one, could give as a gift to someone. And so Luther said, whoa, you mean the righteousness by which I am saved is not mine? He called it an alien righteousness, a righteousness that belongs properly to somebody else, that it was a righteousness that is outside of us, namely the righteousness of Christ that Jesus earned by living a perfect life, his righteousness, the perfect life that he earned, his perfect track record gets stamped on believers, gets credited to our account, gets applied to us as an alien righteousness. And Luther said, when I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Ghost and the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. And eventually this led 
This discovery led to his split with Rome and to the preaching of the gospel and to the Reformation and to the reason why we're here this morning. Revival happened when he discovered the true gospel. He, that's, listen, this is good news for us who think that Christianity is a straitjacket, that it's legalistic, it's rules-oriented. No, you can't earn the righteousness that's given by Christ. It's a free gift to us. But the righteousness isn't just a gift. That makes it sound like cheap grace. Oh, righteousness applied to me? Whoo, live my life however I want to live. No, no, no. The righteousness that comes from the power of God in the gospel, the righteousness, it's, it is a power. It is, listen, it is God's righteous way of righteousing sinners. God's righteous way of righteousing sinners. He declares us righteous. He gives it to us, gives us this alien righteousness while also making us righteous by faith. Anders Nygren says this in his commentary. What does that mean by faith? Each person must make it his own by an act of faith. This does not mean that faith is like another kind of law, but easier. Now, I want you to hear that. There's many preachers that turn the gospel into legalism by telling people, you just need more faith. Put your faith in this. I've had people come to me weeping, broken marriages, and, and pastors told them, if you have faith, God will restore your marriage. And God didn't restore their marriage. And so instead of cursing God, they come and they curse themselves. And they said, I obviously didn't have enough faith. That's a false gospel. If you have enough faith, your child won't get sick. If you have enough faith, blah, blah, blah. That's a false gospel of legalism. Faith is not another work that we do. Look, it is not another kind of law, but easier, as though God and man were cooperating to bring about salvation. It is not man's faith that gives the gospel its power. Quite the contrary. It's the power of the gospel that makes it possible for one to believe. Paul is not saying that people achieve power by their own believing effort. He's saying rather that the power of God is at work in the gospel. What's he saying? This is, we hear the gospel and it sounds good to us. Well, what happened there? Why does it sound good to us? Why does it sound good to us and sound terrible to others? Because God is working in the gospel and through it in us, that God is giving us the faith to believe it. Leon Morris again says this, the faith spoken of here, listen, is the openness to the gospel which God himself creates. Faith is the openness to the gospel that God himself creates. He later says, and yet this faith, as God's work in a man, is in a real sense more truly and fully the man's own personal decision than anything which he himself does or, or of himself. For it is the expression of the freedom which God has restored to him, the freedom to obey God. So we were slaves to sin, and in the gospel, through the power of the gospel, God comes into us and opens our eyes, and now we hear the gospel, and we see it as good news, and now for once in our life, we can actually have the freedom to choose to believe the good news. 
So faith is something God gives us and it is something we must exercise. We must choose to put our faith in the gospel. But here's the problem. Many of us think that believing the gospel is a one-time decision. We say, yeah, I did that when I was a kid or at church camp or that one day when I walked an aisle. But believing the gospel isn't something you do once. It's something we are meant to do every day, every moment of every day. Look in our text, verse 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Okay, from what? From faith, for faith. From faith, for faith. What's he saying? He's saying Faith in the gospel is the beginning of salvation. It's the middle of salvation. It's the end of salvation. That our whole life is about believing the gospel. It's not something you do once and then you forget about it. We never move on from the gospel. We come to faith by believing the gospel and we grow in faith by believing the gospel. We are to live by faith in the gospel every moment of every day. Now listen, in revivals, people rediscover this. They rediscover the power of the gospel that brings many people to faith. That's evangelistic. But it also causes many believers to take large strides in their own sanctification. And I've seen this personally in the life of this church, and I've seen it in the life of my own missional community. When things are stale and when things are cold, what we need is more gospel, not to move on to something else. Now, I want you, I want you to see the radical nature of what I just said. This puts every single person in this room today and every single person out there in the same spot, spiritually speaking. No matter who you are, no matter where you are in your life, no matter what you're struggling with this morning, your answer, your need is to believe the gospel. If you've never put your faith in Jesus and you're struggling to find yourself, you're struggling to manage the guilt you feel of the bad decisions you made in your past and you need hope. You need meaning and purpose in a world that is deeply broken. You can find all of that in the gospel that God loves you and you know that because he proved it by sending his son Jesus for you and Jesus proved that he loves you by willingly dying for you to rectify your broken relationship with God and to give you power to live your life in a new way. That Jesus guarantees you an eternity of love with the Father once we die or Christ comes back. And he also guarantees you a new power to live with every day of your life. If you believe that, today is the day of your salvation. And you're going to get new life in you. And you're going to be more buoyant than you've ever been before. And listen to this though. But if you've been a Christian for 80 years, let's go 90 years. The call for you today is the same. What do you need to do today? You need to believe the gospel. Listen, don't base your righteousness, your standing before God on your Bible knowledge or your church attendance or the prayers that you've prayed or your morality or even your own love for God. This makes you a cold, religious, 
person and full of spiritual pride. Instead, look to Jesus, our only hope. He gives you a perfect righteousness. It's an alien righteousness that you can stand in his presence and know him and walk with him in a, in a, in a unique way because of Christ's righteousness, not your own. He gives us this through faith in the gospel. Listen, if you're struggling in here to change some area of your life, I mean, you can blame it on your parents. You can blame it on your upbringing. You can blame it on your DNA. Those things are all real. They have an effect on us. Listen, you don't need to believe the gospel and then move on to self-help books. You don't need to believe the gospel and then work really hard to change yourself. You need to believe the gospel and then you need to take it deeper into your heart and believe in a greater way. Now, here's the analogy, and this is, I'm kind of pretty much closing today, so I've along. Here's the analogy. Every summer, my family and I travel out to Colorado to spend time with our family that live out there. If you've ever been out there, you've probably driven through these amazing tunnels through the mountains. And I'm always amazed at these tunnels. We always yell at the kids, kids, look, look. You know, it's a tunnel, right? <laughs> but I can hardly even imagine what goes into creating such a tunnel. Large enough for hundreds of vehicles to drive through a mountain, right? For hundreds of years, people looked and said, we got to go over that or we have to go around that. And then somebody said, what if we went through it? Right? This, is, this amazes me. But I, I know a little bit about it from a little bit of research. And the first thing I know is that to get through a mountain, it takes explosive power. Nobody is digging through a mountain. You have to blow your way through. And the second thing I know is that you can't just throw a stick of dynamite or even a hundred sticks of dynamite at it and hope for the best. Right? Those explosions will just bring about more damage and more carnage, and they won't be concise or direct enough to get through the mountain. What you have to do is you have to core drill this mountain. You have to drill down into this mountain, and you drill these long shafts down into the mountain, and then they slide sticks of dynamite down into these tubes that go down into the mountain itself, and then when they have the fuse that comes out, and then when they light the fuse, it brings about a controlled strike, a subterranean explosion that begins to create a new pathway through the mountain. See, you can't just put the dynamite on the surface. It's got to go deep down to bring about real change. The same is true of the gospel. The gospel is the dynamite. And the deeper you take it into your heart, the more explosive and life-changing it is. That's why Jesus died for your sins. That's throwing the gospel at the surface. Yeah, I get it, I get it. What's that got to do with my real life? All of us have what seems like to us mountains in our own life. Negative forms of behavior that have taken many years to develop. We didn't become the angry, bitter person that we are overnight. And they seem, these mountains in our life seem overwhelming to us. It's like looking at the mountain and going, I got to go up or around it. This is exhausting. I don't know what to do. 
Well, Jesus tells us, don't go up, don't go around, go through it. Well, why do I got to go through it? By believing the gospel. See, when we look at it, we don't even know where to begin to start to change these behaviors. Listen, why are you so controlling? Why are you so fearful? Why are you incapable of making commitments and sticking to it? Why can't you keep a job? Why do you get so angry or so bitter when somebody criticizes your work? Why are you so sheepish about sharing your faith? These are all mountains in our life that need change and they need the gospel. And how do we change? We drill down into our hearts and we light the gospel fuse by faith. Do you know how to do that? Do you know how to think about your controlling behavior and bring the gospel down into that and let it begin to blow a pathway through it? What does the gospel say? God's in control and I'm not. I don't have to be in control. God is great and sovereign and so I can just trust him and I don't have to be earning this thing. I don't have to be proving myself anymore. I can relax and I can rest and I can trust. That's just one example. Do you know how to do that? With every mountain in your life, drilling down into it and lighting the gospel fuse. See, this is what it means to live everyday life from faith for faith. And what he goes on to say, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous live by believing and trusting in the gospel and not in ourselves. But if you can't do that, this is why you need a missional community. This is why you need people to help you do that. When I'm not believing the gospel, I can't even see that I'm not believing the gospel. And I need the elders in my missional community to speak the good news of the gospel to me and to drill down into my heart and light the gospel fuse. And everybody's always looking at me so odd and so weird, like he can't really be saying this. He preaches the gospel every week. And when it comes to show, when I have to reveal like, no, I actually don't believe the gospel for some of my personal mountains sometimes. Drill down, drop the gospel, speak the gospel to it, light the fuse. I try every week to drill down into your heart in some way and to drop the gospel into it. And I know God's changing you, but it takes more than me. It takes more than preaching. It takes a missional community. I can't see you and hear you and know you like somebody in your community can. We're also going to be talking, they can't get practical today. We're going to be talking tonight. Tonight, I got an hour to get real practical on what does it mean to drill down in and drop the gospel and apply it to a specific issue in your life. You come to missional community training tonight at Moline, you can hear about it. I want to close with this quote. Put it up with Tim Keller. Revival occurs as a group of people who, on the whole, think they already know the gospel, discover that they do not really or fully know it. And by embracing the gospel, they cross over into living faith. When this happens, in any extensive way, an enormous release of energy occurs, the power of God. The church stops basing its justification on its sanctification. The non-churched see this and are attracted 
by the transformed life of the Christian community as it grows into its calling to be a sign of the kingdom, a beautiful alternative to a human society without Christ. If you've been tempted to believe the gospel was something you did way back then, and now you're kind of on your own, in your own strength, and you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be a good person, I'm sorry that's a false gospel. I ask that today you'd repent of that and put your faith back in the true gospel. The God who saves us from our sins is also empowering us to live new lives now. I ask that you would pray and ask God to drill down into your own heart and these mountains in your own life and drop the gospel and help you believe the gospel as the way through these issues. Let me pray. Father, the gospel is the best news we've ever heard. Better than we won the war, better than we have a healthy baby, better than all the other news that we get. The gospel is the news that Jesus came and lived a perfect life. And then through his death and resurrection, he offers his righteousness, his perfect life to us. And when that gets offered to us and we see it as good news and we put our faith in it, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us and we have a new power, a power to live a different way. And we don't move on from the gospel. We keep believing the gospel every day of our life, that we're sinful and yet loved, that we're broken and yet being healed that were lost and yet found. Father, would you quicken our hearts by faith this morning? Help us believe it. Help us trust it. And this is not some ethereal thing out there. This isn't just some high theology. We get it put in our hands this morning. That you were broken. Jesus willingly went to the cross and died. Your body was split open and your blood was shed so that we could know God and we could have new lives and we could have a new power and we could experience him in this life. And I pray this morning that believers in Christ, as they take your body and your blood, that you would give them faith to believe it. And for those who have never put their faith in you, they wouldn't take the elements this morning, but instead they would take you by faith. Say, Jesus, I don't get it all but this sounds like good news to me and I want to know more. And they believe it this morning. This is for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.